Well, there's something frightening about it's freedom. Terrifying. Let's be honest. Yeah. So, you know, it takes a leap. Yes. It takes a leap. Again, how did you do that? Because when we're going through your story, I love to stop for a moment and say, okay, what got you over the fear? Yeah. Well, I have a friend, my friend Sal, and I talk about this on my podcast. He told me when I left the Broadway industry, Broadway community, he was like, leap and the net will appear. Hmm. And that blew my mind. And I, I keep that concept all the time. If you leap and trust in above and your spirit and your intuition, the net will always appear. And it always appears. That was Miles Johnson. And I'm so happy to share my conversation with him on this special episode of Bucketless Careers. Thanks for joining me. I'm Krista Laurie. We're celebrating Black History Month by spotlighting his honest, inspiring, and irreverent voice and the path to his passion, work that focuses on diversity and inclusion in corporate settings. Miles started his career journey as an actor, working in the Broadway community for more than 15 years, and he made pivots along the way that brought him to the here and now. And he considers this to be his most important role, helping to root out racism. Miles shares his background with me and his identity, and he says that's the crux of his storytelling. His father was a black man from the Bronx, his mom a Jewish immigrant from Romania, whose parents were in the Holocaust, and he's gay. His perspective and insights teach us how we can be better in 2021, how to pursue your passion, and the importance of belonging and inclusion in the workplace. Listening to him made me want to do more to change the narrative, and I hope you'll feel it too. Miles, thank you so much for being on the show today, especially since it's a holiday weekend, President's Day weekend. So I appreciate your time even more. It is my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, I love your career journey for various reasons, one of which is the fact that I was a Broadway mom for a little while (laughs) and had a glimpse of your world. And I have so much respect for what you guys do, what you did at the time and, you know, what you're doing now. We're going to get into all the phases of your career evolution and how you got to your bucket list career, which you tell me you that's where you are and how important the role is that you're actually playing for our society right now. Well, first of all, thank you again for having me. And I think the uh, conversation around career shifts and changes is really important right now, especially because we're in this time where there is so much uncertainty, especially I'm seeing for the performing arts world. So I think it's a really important conversation. I'm glad. I want to go back chronologically to your Broadway days in New York City to begin with. And as we walk through it, you know, what was your level of self-awareness back then? I started auditioning for Broadway shows when I was about 18 years old. I got called in for a movie, actually, Finding Forrester with Sean Connery. And it was about an urban kid playing basketball. And this was really strange to me because... I am not that at all. And this is kind of the beginning of like looking at the scope of the performing industry where it's like, if you're of color, you're already in a box. And for back history, I'm half black and I'm half white. So I'm light skinned and I look like I'm kind of Spanish, but I got called in for this movie. And when I was in, it was clear that like, this wasn't the right role for me. But at that time, Rent the Musical was a very popular Broadway musical. It was, this was 1998. So it was out for two Love years. Love Rent. Yeah, it was the best. One of my favorites. So it was on Broadway. It had won the Tony and all these awards. And it literally changed the future of musical theater. So that was my first big show. I traveled the country for about a year. It was when I had like my first boyfriend, made some of my closest friends who I'm still friends with today. And that just kind of took me on this journey of just like difference is to be celebrated. To start my career with Rent is just kind of like beautiful. Oh, totally. That show is about 
embracing diversity and individualism. Yeah. So seeing that and then coming back into New York and then seeing how that doesn't actually translate if you look. And I, and through the years, I kind of paid attention to it, but I didn't really because I never really kind of focused on my color until it started to impede my career where I was in callbacks nonstop for like top shows and I wouldn't get them. And it kept coming down to this thing of like, you're not quite the right type with air quotes. And I would always look to see who was the type they were hiring. And it was always a darker skinned black person. And I was always called in for black roles. So I started to notice that as it kept being the same answer for me not getting things. So that's why I was like, I got to somehow figure out how to get on the other side of this. And the only way I knew to get on the other side of it was to leave it. But I was like, I can't leave it. This is my life. I went to school for it. It's all that I know. But then I took a breath around, it was around, I was 31 and I was up for Porgy and Bess on Broadway. And I'm a classical singer. Like I studied opera and Porgy and Bess is a all, is an all black opera And it was being cast by a white casting agency and a white woman director. And when you saw the show, you could see it's a very specific type of black person that they hired. And I had like six or seven callbacks for that show. And it just really got me because I was just like, my agent called me and I was always getting calls of like, they loved you, but I could hear it in his voice. And I remember being in Seattle visiting a friend and we were at brunch and my phone rang. It was my agent. I was like, I have to take this. And I ran outside because I raced to the final callback and then raced to the airport to go visit my friend. And I almost missed my flight. I found that I was giving my life up for this career that wasn't really feeding me. I just kept getting emptier and emptier. And I remember being in Seattle, out in the street. It was raining because Avs, it's Seattle. And my agent <laughs> called me and told me that they loved you. And I heard the butt coming. And I was like, I just literally screamed the F word. I don't know if you curse on your podcast. I do on mine. I mean, I haven't before. <laughs> I've only done a few. So they are quote unquote clean. But yeah. I don't think what you're saying is going to change that. Yeah. But yeah, go ahead. But yeah, I was standing in the street and I screamed the F word like so loud. And I just sat on the curb and he was like, I know, I know we're going to get it one day. And I was like, I'm tired. I'm tired. And I sat on the curb and I cried in the rain and I went back into brunch and my friend was like, what happened? And I told her and I was like, something broke in my heart that day. And so I was like, why don't I take some time? I don't know what that means, but like I can, you can always go back to whatever you want. And that's what I tell people when they switch careers. It's like live YOLO. Like you can always, especially performing because you'll just be a different type. So I got realistic with myself and I was like, "There, these are the years where I'm not making a lot of money in this and I need to focus on something where I'm growing my brain and, and working towards something. So I stepped away and I ended up working at SoulCycle. Yeah. And the thing that I found in the early days of SoulCycle, because I started there in 2011 when they were very small, only four New York City locations, one in Scarsdale and one in Bridgehampton and East Hampton that were seasonal. And it was just like really exciting. And they were really starting to grow. Equinox was about to come in and put tons of money in. Yeah, they own them. It was abundance at the time there. And the thing that I noticed was they kept telling me yes. Everything I asked, they were like, yes, let's do that. Yes. And I was like, in my last career, mostly were no's. Everything is no, 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 <laughs> You no. didn't know what to do with all of this. Right? Yeah, I was like, wait, I could do that? You and So fast forward to me being at SoulCycle for about nine months, they asked me to go run, help run the Hamptons in the summer, which is like the coveted role at Soul in the days because you get to go live in the Hamptons. They pay for everything. They give you a car. It's very hard work. But while I was there, I was like, sure, I'll go live in the Hamptons for the summer. Let's do that. Like someone else pay for everything. And while I was there... After all of my years of fighting to get on Broadway, I finally got a call to be in a Broadway show. I was like, of course you did. Are you kidding me, universe? (laughs) (laughs) Of course you did. So what show was that? 
So it was going to be the revival of Jekyll and Hyde, which was going to go on tour. It did. It went on tour and then it went to Broadway. So if you got hired, you're going to do the tour, which is the out of town trial. Mm-hmm. And then it opened on Broadway. And my friend was a music director. Someone got hurt and I got into the show and I was like, wait, what? It's like when you, when you let something go is when it comes back to you. And it's like, Hey, are you sure you want to let this go? That's truly amazing. And it was such a beautiful moment. And the thing about the people who were at SoulCycle at that time is they were like, yes, go do that. You're amazing. We, you always have a space here with us. If that's what you need to do, go do that. And I was like, again, this place is telling me yes and supporting me. So I felt, I felt on top of the world. I like went insane. Like I had spent 11 years at that time trying to get on Broadway, getting so close, doing tours, everything but Broadway. So then I, I was excited. And then there was a weird feeling inside that I felt that like something was going to, the other shoe was going to drop. I felt it. Really? I really did. And it was weird. I couldn't let it go. So this was in the summer. So it was July. I was leaving at the end of the July to head back to New York. And last week I was in the Hamptons. I was actually in my room packing. I remember it like it was yesterday. And I get it, my phone rings and it's my agency. And I saw my phone and I was like, something's up. And my agent called me and he's like, so... We just got a call from the team and they decided that they want to switch your role because I was originally cast in the ensemble, no covers. Mm. And that's why I was like, I'll go back. I'll go back to this. And they were like, so they decided that because of your range and because you can cover so many things, they want to switch your role to swing. And I was like, no. I was like, I already have a contract. They can't do that. We talked about this. My son was a swing and they kept saying to me, but that means he's so uber talented because he can do everything. But I really think it's just <laughs> being abused as an actor. It's abuse. It is. It really is. I mean, if you're capable of doing that, of, of running various roles and it's the drop of a hat, yeah. I mean, it's like, oh, this person's sick. You're going on in the second act, right? And, you're, and it was your child, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was a couple of years back. So he was 10. You know? That's so- insane. <laughs> Right. So long story short, I went to the, I went to equity. I talked to them. I talked to my agent. I talked to the casting agency. And, and a, until a producer signs a contract, they can switch anything they want to, which I thought was utter bullshit. Excuse my language. That's so frustrating. I was so heartbroken that like I lost control of my life again. I felt like I had gained control. I said yes because I decided to say yes. And then they snatched it back from me again. And I didn't have an option. So I battled with myself. I went to therapy, like talked to a therapist and basically decided I would do it because I hadn't officially ever been on Broadway. And I swung 10 years before that. And so I was like, how many parts is it? They were like, just four or five. I was like, fine. Went to the first day of rehearsal. And by the end of the day, I had amassed covering about 10 to 13 roles because they were like, Miles, take that. Miles, take that. Miles, you can take that. You can take that. And I just sat there and I was like, what am I doing? I am so upset and angry and I don't want to be here. And the room was not warm. The people in the cast, nothing against them, but it wasn't a warm moment. And I just knew that this was the time to make a choice for myself and my future. And I remember at the end of the first day of all shows, you're supposed to hand your contract in to like be like, here it is. And I remember looking at my watch around like four, it was like 4.44. I remember looking down at my watch and that's when I decided to stop learning. I was like, I'm not learning anything else. I'm, I'm quitting. I'm not doing this. You never looked back after that? Honestly, I didn't. I kind of had this moment where I was like, and I talk about this all the time to other people. Sometimes you think something is your dream and you get to the door of that dream and you look through it and the actual hard part is looking at it and being like, this isn't the dream and walking away from it. So I like to say like, I got on Broadway and then I decided I might go back in the future, but I'm going back the way I want to go back with my power. And I needed to go work for 
something that empowered me and didn't take away my power because I was tired of it. I cried. I went through it. Like I called SoulCycle immediately. This woman, Amy Peck, who's like one of my mentors in hospitality and culture, and I love her to death. I called her and I was like, Amy, I quit Broadway. Like, what am I going to do? Can I come back to the Hamptons? Like, I need a job. Because I didn't have a job at the time. And she was like, hold up. Why don't you take like a week? Breathe it out. Let me know if you still want to come back. As we said, there's always a home for you. Little did I know behind the scenes, she had to go to like the then COO and be like, we got to let this guy back. He's incredible. Like she didn't know me yet, but she was like, he quit in the middle of the summer. Like our busiest season in the Hamptons, he just quit. And Amy was like, no, 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 no. You're going to want him back. No, they saw your value. They knew. Yeah, exactly. They saw my value and I wanted, I needed to feel valued. And that's why I ended up creating this space in corporate settings for people to feel equal and valued. Because then once I went back to that space, I was like, okay, that's not happening here. And it's not happening in the luxury boutique fitness industry. It's a very unbalanced community. It's for the wealthy. It's for the rich. And if you want to be real about it, it's for wealthy, rich white people. If you look at it and you look at the data... That's what it is. And so I was like, how can I now channel my energy into changing that space? So I observed for many years because you have to, as a person of color, and I spoke about this in one of my meetings one time with the diversity council that I helped incept at SoulCycle, where I was like, as a person of color, you have got to feel safe to speak up. And it takes a long time to get there. But now I'm there. So like, I have to do it for others to help make it a bigger conversation. And I helped create the first employee resource group at SoulCycle, which was for people of color. But I wanted to be very specific that it was for people of color and allies so that people of color can say how they feel being in the space. And also allies can hear the story and then translate what they're feeling and saying. And it's all about listening to each other. And I would always have conversations with black people and people of color saying like, I know you're angry, but And you don't feel like you should have to do this, but the only way to fix it is to do it. And if you're tired, take breaks, tap out. But this is the only way to shift it is to educate white people and get them on our side so that we can form an alliance one person at a time and make it stronger. So that became like kind of the crux of my storytelling because I was like, I'm all about equality. Like I'm literally made up of equality. My dad is a black man from the Bronx. My mom is a Jewish immigrant from Romania whose parents were in the Holocaust and I'm gay and I was born on leap year. So I'm just like, I'm a unicorn and I'm here to bring everybody together. (laughs) I love that. No, you're the perfect person for this. And I think it's amazing that you've recognized it and you're very good at it. Thank you. So this ally concept, you run white ally educational forums. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure everybody even knows what that is. Yeah. So clearly a mechanism for good Mm -hmm. and inclusivity. That's what you're doing now. Just bring us up to date. You're offering those forums. And I think you said to me that after COVID-19 hit, you decided to branch out and consult. Yeah. So I was working for, I left SoulCycle in the summer of 2019, kind of like went through my spirit of like, what's next? Like I always, for the past like two years I was at Soul, I was like, I want to work for a smaller business because as businesses get larger, corporations, they have things that they must do to hit the numbers and it changes. And I saw it growing very big. And for two years, I was like, I need to leave soon and go back to a smaller business because my heart is in like grassroots, scrappy, like, obviously, I have a lot to say. So I'm like, I want my voice to be heard. And I don't want it to just be screaming into a chasm of darkness and not like I'm here to help. No, but people babble, you're speaking truth. Thank you. Let's be clear. But Thank you. (laughs) But like, it comes off as negative when you work at companies when you're the person that's like, hey, guys, 
this isn't right, or we should try it this way. And I've learned to like also offer recommendations rather than just criticisms. Mm-hmm. But the issue is when you're a vocal person, and which I said, it takes a while to get to be vocal as a person of color, people take you as a troublemaker because you're pushing the grain when it's like, no, I'm just trying to educate you to make your business better. People don't understand that like equality is good for business. You will make money because you're showing more people themselves, marketing, branding, media, you have like, that is the bottom line, which is so it's astounding that people don't understand that the more people you represent, the more people who be there for you in your community. So that has become a part of my business practices as well. And Mm -hmm. people have been like, why don't you get a diversity and inclusion job? And I'm like, no, because that's like a, that's like a section of a company. I think diversity and inclusion needs to be in every sector of every business. Yes, focus on it, but incept it into everything that you do. So I left, I ended up working as a general manager at a smaller boutique fitness brand because my friend was um, the vice president of operations. And she was like, I need help organizing on the ground. Would you be interested? And I was like, yes, I want to help. I want to help this business. They sadly had to close their doors because of the pandemic. So I got furloughed. And my friends have always been like, you need to work. I have a psychic friend and she's like, you need to work on your own. I'm like, I'm terrified. I can't do that. Like who can do that? I have to pay my bills. I have to pay my mail. Oh, there's something frightening about it's freedom. Terrifying. Let's be honest. Yeah. So, you know, it takes a leap. Yes. It takes a leap. Again, how did you do that? Because when we're going through your story, I love to stop for a moment and say, okay, what got you over the fear? Yeah. Well, I have a friend, my friend Sal, and I talk about this on my podcast. He told me when I left the Broadway industry, Broadway community, he was like, leap and the net will appear. Hmm. And that blew my mind. And I, I keep that concept all the time. If you leap and trust in above and your spirit and your intuition, the net will always appear. And it always appears. Like my past nine years, because I'll be 41 in two weeks, I've lived by that and it just gets better. I really love that. Yeah. Leap and the net will appear. But yeah, but so because I was furloughed, I I took the like about six weeks to just kind of meditate, marinate. I was exhausted. So it came around at the right time. Unfortunately, the pandemic, like we were all stuck at home and I don't want to say like it was the right time, but it was the right time for me to be alone. And I took the time to just be alone, meditate. I smoked a lot of marijuana, like watched documentaries, wrote little ditties, just had fun. And when I was done emotionally, I was like, I'm ready to work again. Yeah. Literally the next day, a friend of mine called me and was like, this company is looking for someone to consult and be the head of customer experience. Like, are you interested in that? And I was like, yeah. So I started consulting and it was my first foray into like actual consulting. And now I'm doing that for other things. So I do customer experience as well as internal communications is my background. Mm -hmm. And then the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement this past summer because of George Floyd and all these other black people that have been like shot and killed in the street for no reason and in their homes for no reason. Breonna Taylor, who still hasn't gotten justice. But I kind of was like, this is insane. And what can I do to help it? And that's when I came up with this idea to create a space to feel safe for white people to come and ask questions. Because a lot of white people in this last resurgence were like, what can I do? I don't know what to do. I I don't know what to say. And I'm just like, great. That's where we can start from. Education. And I would like to create a safe space for you to come and ask questions and not feel stupid or racist because you don't know unless you know. We don't put children into kindergarten and expect them to graduate from high school next week. We have to like work through and educate. And the best way to educate, I feel, is not through spreadsheets and slides. It's through conversation. So I was like, I don't want to create a training to sell to companies. I want to create a space for conversation. And so in doing that, I did it on my own and just made one. And people were like, I had like 100 people show up. And I was like, whoa, this is amazing. Was that on Eventbrite? Was that in June? It was. 
Okay, because I started following you on Eventbrite because I'm like, I want to be alerted to an event like that. Yeah. And I noticed that there are other models of educating white allies out there, but I want to zero in on what's different about Miles Johnson and what you're offering. And I mean, it sounds to me like you put a lot of emphasis on getting people to ask questions they might be hesitant to ask. And I'll personalize it. Someone like me, you know, Mm -hmm. I just want to make sure I'm asking the right questions because I'll never understand your journey. I'll never understand the journey of a woman of color. Mm -hmm. There are so many people out there like me who want to help change the narrative. Of course. And that's why I wanted to create the space for it, because I think the first Band-Aid that needs to be ripped off is the fear of being wrong or messing up. 100%. And I always tell, I give examples of how we all mess up. I don't speak for all Black people, and so I also invite people of color into the room for conversation as well. But I also tell them, if you're going to come, just know that like this isn't the space to be angry and yell at white people. This is a, a safe space to educate them because we need to get them on our side. And how how do you do that? I mean, that is the million dollar question. <laughs> well, I think, like I said, creating a safe space for people to come authentically and ask questions and be raw and make mistakes, say the wrong thing and ask, just ask. Because also what I notice is, People are scared to ask, but as soon as someone brings it up, then people start joining the conversation. It's like opening the floodgates there. Yeah, we all have the same questions. What the fu- Excuse me, I want to curse. What, <laughs> like my show, let's talk about sh- Let's talk about the quiet things and the taboo things that you think you aren't allowed to talk about. Why do we, why do they get to that point? Yeah. How do we keep them from getting to shameful and fearful and keep them in this place of this is real? Let's fix it. It is getting that dialogue going. Yeah. Let's talk about the fact that like black people built this country for free as slaves. They were not, they were property up until the sixties, basically, which it's, we're still fighting through as you see. Yes, we are. So it's like, you have to put that into history. We don't learn about that in history. That's not in the history books. They keep it out. But in order to come to the light, you got to go through the dark. I mean, I think that there's a very large contingent of people who want to move in that direction and are trying, but we need you. We need your voice to bring us there. I want to talk about your podcast because there's so much to share about you, which I love. I know. I'm like, I'm trying to keep your podcast episode short. I'm going to do short ones. <laughs> <laughs> we might be over, but when it's worth it, it's worth it. So you have a very easy way about you in terms of your hosting style, and it's very real and authentic. But what do you hope to give to listeners? So I always tell people this, and I always tell my guests this as well. I'm like, before we start, I always meet with them for like a half an hour and we just chat. Especially If it's someone that I know really well, I don't want to meet with them beforehand because mm-hmm. I want it to be organic. Yeah. The thing is about working in corporate America and coming from an artistic background, I feel like we put on too many airs as human beings. It's like, why can't we just have a conversation and talk about shit? Why does everything have to be like, what are your KPIs? And like, where are we going with this? Like, show me a, a workflow. I'm just like, can we just be <laughs> humans and just have a conversation about um, life? So refreshing. Just to hear you say that relaxes me. Yeah. You know I mean? like I, my, And the best thing about it is my mom listens to my podcast and she's so conservative. Well, not conservative, but like she's, she's but more so than you. Yeah. yeah. I curse a lot. And she's like, why do you feel like you have to curse? I'm like, mom, cursing is, there's a thing on Netflix called the history of curse words. It does something when you say the F word, like you feel and it's like why not curse it's just a word we give power to these things so like why do we have to put on airs just be a real human it's been hard for me to be honest with you because i came from this background of listen journalism is about bringing the story to the surface but it's always very tight on time and you can't go in depth and there are parameters 
this has been such a release to me to reveal more about myself, to give people like you a chance to talk without, you know, a commercial break Mm -hmm. (laughs) interrupting us. It's the tip of the iceberg, those kinds of interviews. So it's been a fantastic journey. So I get it. And I get why a lot of people are starting podcasts. I guess it's our job to try to make these... uh, (laughs) unique and singular in some way, right? Yeah. And that's why I kind of wanted, I, like I said earlier, like I was like, who wants to listen to me talk? Like, who am I? But then I was like, who am I not? Why not? Yeah. Who's doing it like me? No one is like you. And that's another thing is like, everybody has a special gift to give. So I try to find the people right now. I've started with the people that I know. I know so many incredible humans and doing this podcast reminds me of all the incredible humans. So it excites me to have conversations and share their missions and their goals as humans with the world. My podcast is not about me. It's about my people that I'm interviewing and it's their space. It's the amazing guests like you. And and it's so funny that you mentioned that a lot of the people that you're interviewing are your friends because I thought that seemed really odd and lazy when, when I was you know setting up my lineup. Like, oh, I'm just going to use people I know, but I do know a lot of great people yeah. and the conversations are fantastic. I think that's the point right there. Why do we resist the ease of life? Why can't we just let life be easy? The universe is presenting us with our path and why do we fight it? Yeah, That's how I felt being an actor. I felt like I was fighting my mission. I was like trying to fit into this box that I thought was going to be my life. That was my 20s. But then that's why I love getting older. Like your 30s are like, what was I doing? Great. I learned stuff. But like, why am I resisting the abundance? If it's easy, let it be easy. Conversations, let them be easy. Why overcomplicate them? If your intention is education and connection, then any mistake you make in that, then you can just apologize and keep moving forward and learning more. That's how we grow as a society. Well, you're already getting into what I was just about to ask you for, which is the takeaways part of this, right? Because like I said, this is a new podcast, but I've had some feedback and people are loving when they have these nuggets that they can apply to their own career trajectories and their own lives, because a lot of the themes are universal. So if you had to boil it down to a few points that really resonate with you from your journey and just what you want to give people. Thank you for asking. There are a couple of things that I always tell people they can do, and they're tangible things that do every day. For instance, you're at work. Be conscious of what is around you, especially HR people and leaders. I work a lot with leadership teams because I believe it starts at the top. And if you look around at leadership teams and corporations, they're very homogenous, mostly white men. Sometimes white women get in the room and there's barely any representation. That affects so many things. That means you don't have diverse mindsets. You don't have diverse experiences. So how are you developing and growing your business? So call that out, especially if you work in recruiting. Like, don't be lazy. A lot of people are like, I have a really hard time finding talent of color. What are you doing? What are you doing differently besides hiring your friends and your friends of friends? Go out of your box and be better. Yeah. Protesting. I am not a person who likes violence. Not that protests are violent, but as you see, protests can turn violent and it's terrifying and it makes people not want to stand up and say anything, but you can educate. My protest is education and everybody needs to figure out what is best for them and in their space. A lot of people are like, well, do I post? Do I not post? I'm like, do you want to post? What is your intention of posting? What are you saying and why are you saying it? That's so valuable. Be conscious about what it is you want to do and say. And you don't even have to be, it doesn't have to be a big grand thing. It's just you talking to your kids, you not standing for someone saying something racist. You can't just be a passive ally. You have to be active in your day-to-day life in every situation. And you have to check things as they come out of people's mouths and minds. I mean, very powerful stuff. 
and really important and timely that we all have these conversations. I applaud what you're doing. I'm really a fan. Thank you very much. So on social media, where can we follow you and stay current with what you're offering to the world, which is a lot. It's a lot. (laughs) In a good way, in a good way. I've been taking a break from teaching my white allyship training because it's Black History Month right now and I'm exhausted like mentally because what people don't realize is it's a celebration, but it's also entwined with our trauma of our history and past. So it's exhausting to be a person of color. That makes sense. Especially if you work in a space where there isn't a lot of people of color. So just remember when you're asking people for advice and stuff as an ally, first ask them if they're available emotionally to have the conversation. So I say that because I've been taking a break from teaching my white allyship training, but you can find me on at live where you live, Instagram, L-I-V-E, where, W-H-E-R-E-U, the letter live. And you can find me on my podcast, which is called Let's Talk About She, spelled (laughs) S-H-H, and then I-T is in parentheses, three H's. I wish people could see the way your lips curl when you say it. You can find more Bucket List Careers content on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. I'm Krista Laurie. Thanks for listening. Always feel free to message me your thoughts, subscribe, rate, and review if you have a moment wherever you get your podcasts. An ironic media production. Visit us at ironicmedia.com.